0: Well folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and right, Berto will is your host. Thank you so kind of being a part of the show. We are going to have a great show for you today. As usual, we have a great, great, great person today that we're interviewing, likely the next mayor of Philadelphia. This is a a, a wonderful woman that I met several times at several net roots, but I think the the, the the part the one that really got me into uh, what what she what she was all about was when I met her in Arizona, and she followed Nina Turner. But anyway, let's get into the get into the program. Hey, I started the the the, the multi chat late, so if you put anything in there, I may not see you. But right now, I'm seeing Melanie Keelan from Barcelona, Spain; Breach MCP from New York; Tom C from Michigan; Yvette Avery Harrod from Georgia; uh, Lee Grant from Texas; E two two four seven from Hey E two two four seven. What what state are you in? Not sure. Okay, and of course we have, I don't see Brother Rudnan, and usually he's a fir- there he is, watching from Twitch, he says, I'm looking at another screen now, but that's all I have from him, where it says, I'm watching from Twitch, I'm watching from Twitch. Anyhow, folks, welcome.
1: Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China. And full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free.
0: The politics done right, we are going to have a great show. And since it turns out that nobody started with a long, uh, Eric Hayes just came in with a long notion... With a long notion, I'm going to go ahead and get our interview started in a little bit as soon as I queue her up, because as usual, you know, I forgot to cue this thing up. Actually, I just got through processing this video. State of confusion is where he said he's from. You're not from the state of confusion. You are from a. I don't recall, though. I don't remember if you ever told me what state you're from, E2247. But Eric Hayes says, before I go into the interview... Eric Hayes says, blasphemous Mallorcas and Pete. They both should either be reprimanded or fired for not doing their jobs. Uh, Mallorcas says, has his head buried and need to see the reality of his inability to do his job. States like New York and California pleading for federal aid should be a signal. Pete now just gaslighting the train situation. And only reason he does anything is optics of politics and media. You know what? Because you said that, I am going to start not with Helen Jim, which is a the Helen Gim, which is the uh which is who I am talking about. But well, I tell you what, let me go ahead and, and and talk and play that, and then we'll we'll get into what Eric has to say. Let's go with Helen Gim first. All right, we are going to do that right this minute. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. We are here with a very special person. Helen Gim recently announced her candidacy for mayor of Philadelphia. Ms. Gim makes it clear that she knows that Philadelphia needs a proven fighter who isn't afraid to take on our hardest challenges and deliver on solutions that have been a model for the nation. She says that. She is that person. Miss Kim is fighting for a safer, more prosperous, equitable Philadelphia that works for all. Miss Kim has been endorsed by First World Democrats, Unite Here, and many others, including Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, American Federation of Teachers, Working Families Party, AFSCME, DC47, Unite Here Locals, 274, 634, and 54, Teamsters, BMD. W.E.D., and so many others. Welcome to the program, Ellen. Thank
1: you, Alberto. It's such an honor to be with you again. I've always enjoyed every time we've been together, and I'm um, just excited to talk to you about how Philadelphia can lead the nation.
0: Well, let me tell you something, and I'm going to start the interview uh, this way, because I remember, I think it was uh, Netroots Arizona, maybe I'm wrong, but one of the Netroots and Nina Turner, uh, one of the most prolific speakers there, there's out there, came on and she gave her stump speech as she was running for, I think it was senator in, in, in um, Ohio. And then I saw this woman coming up and she was, you know, uh, she seemed a bit quiet, etc. And I said, oh, my God, why did they have her follow Nina Turner? Why could they do that? And then you started to speak and you grabbed that audience and you know, knew exactly what to say because you believed everything that you were saying. And you captured the entire net roots at that point. Tell us a little bit about who Helen Gim is yes.
1: well thank you so much um and i still would not want to follow nina turner but um but i you know i uh i i am a philly mom you know i am a former public school teacher a longtime community organizer And a lot of my work in 20 years of community organizing happened before I ever ran for elected office. And because, you know, many of us don't bring political titles or power to the table, we find ways to get to the table in other ways. We built huge coalitions based on really important issues that were mobilizing through the city. Um, That included uh, helping stop a city from spending a billion dollars for a publicly funded baseball stadium that would have displaced a large portion of a of a neighborhood in Philadelphia that meant fighting for our public schools when they were threatened to be taken over by a for-profit company um, when my oldest daughter was just about to enter kindergarten. Um, those things shaped me and made me realize that when so many people in political power looked at really difficult situations, but about essential issues that mattered to people's lives, they often didn't have any of the answers. But when you went out in co- into communities, when you talk to residents, who are about to be displaced, renters fighting to hang on to their homes, um, disabled members of our community struggling to get access to accessible housing, or young people and parents trying to go to a decent school for which they could get their education. I found that there were always answers. There was always clarity. There was always only the prioritization of people's lives over the politics of a given moment that told us no each and every time. So, you know, I spent my life-building movements proving that ordinary people with the with the vision and the um power and and you know like mobilization that is literally built out of just saving lives um were able to take on the politics of any given moment and that's how you know when I ultimately ran for office um I you know we helped end that state takeover of our public schools from 17 years ago, um, put nurses and counselors back into every school. I fought to get clean water in every school building. And now I'm on a mission to modernize every single public school inside and out so they can be that promise to every child when they enter that this city has their back you know, we made sure that housing was primary, that we're going to do development without displacement. But that means that we have to centralize um, housing. So we made sure that, you know, when we heard that there were so many people being evicted, we delivered a huge um, eviction prevention program led by renters themselves, um, who said they needed a lawyer in court, who said that they needed a chance to negotiate um, other alternatives to an eviction. And, you know, we ended up Uh, creating an eviction prevention program that slashed evictions in our city by two thirds, um, made sure that 50,000 people were housed in the city of Philadelphia in the middle of the pandemic, um, distributed almost $250 million to small landlords and large landlords, and probably the single biggest rescue effort of an industry. And now the program that we created right here in Philadelphia is replicated all across the country and was just included in the uh, White House's National Roundtable Bill of Rights. What it proves is that when people lead on solutions that actually fix problems in our lives, we don't just fix things within Philadelphia. We become a model for the nation.
0: You know what is interesting is that, and I, I love the way that you started talking about being a community organizer, because if you want, I believe if you want to be an effective politician, you didn't start out as a politician. My God, you are a teacher. So you saw kids at, their, at their, the genesis of the education, you saw kids that had problems and kids that did well. You could see why some did well, why some didn't. You were there on, in the field as a community organizer. To tell you the truth, I think most politicians or all politicians should first start touching people. And I think that's what you've done over the decades that, uh, that you've actually been a community organizer. Tell us a little bit about why you believe you are that person qualified as one who knows the community, the one who actually not spoke about community from an ivory tower, but has been a part of that community.
1: Yeah. So, you know, like I said, I come out of a world where political titles and power are not what brings us to the table. And so what we you know, what I think community organizers do better than anybody else is that we help mobilize huge coalitions that make it so that elected officials, career electeds who always.
0: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible.
1: told us no, wealthy bureaucrats or CEOs, um, that they can't look away anymore. Um, I'll never forget being a teacher in a public school um, in Philadelphia. You know, I taught in 90 degree classrooms in a 100 plus year old building. Um, I remember losing children out of my classroom. Um, You know, they would come in and come out on any given day and, you know, I'd ask around and say, you know, what happened um, to to one of the, you know, one of my 10 year olds. And the thing was, was that I never got a call from our principal or anybody from, uh, you know, government telling us what had happened. I usually heard about it from another 10 year old in the class who was a neighbor that they got evicted um, and uh, they weren't going to come to school anymore because they had lost the a roof over their heads. And I never, ever forgot that. And I made sure that, you know, when I got into office, if I had the chance to make change um, and, you know, to be clear, uh, I believe that every step of the way we have an opportunity to make change. But if I ever got into office, I would never I would be a different kind of leader that we would show that these things that were told to us happened time and time again, that this was just the way systems ran, um, that we would actually prove that these things could be fixed. And we never, ever had to live like this. Um, I think that I learned that early on when I saw nurses taken out of public schools and children actually die in schools without school nurses i learned that early on when i saw you know uh, as we do a neighborhood literally 5 miles away from here building a 140 million dollar middle school brand new middle school public school for 12 12 year olds and our kids play on broken asphalt for that that's you know like you know, called a playground. Um, They go to schools without functioning bathrooms and roofs that are leaking we have to see a massive shift in what we think is not just politically possible, what's but what's politically necessary right now. And it does take somebody from outside of government oftentimes. Philadelphia is probably one of the last of the machine politics cities where most people come into politics being kind of groomed through a system that rewards people who often are in line with the traditional politics of any given moment. But the politics of any given moment are monstrous for the majority of people, especially in a city like Philadelphia, where poverty and violence and disinvestment and um, dysfunction like co- you know pile upon one another. It's not just that we suffer from poverty; it's that we suffer from a government that further impoverishes people, further pulls people away from any amount of opportunity and refuses to be a calvary. So, you know, my time in office, I, I came into office in 2016, less than two terms ago. But I wanted to show that as soon as we came in, we could prove that all the things that we talked about, that these systems did not have to perpetuate and that we had a major role to play in ending evictions in keeping people housed, in delivering on educational investments that can transform lives. And now we're on a mission to guarantee that a progressive movement can meet the safety demands of this city without rolling the clock back on civil rights, that we can excite economic opportunity without becoming beholden to massive corporations, exploiting cities um, for, you know, for tax breaks and other things without really seeing a rise in the Economic well being of the majority of our citizens. And that, you know, in this post COVID time, that actually we are going to center the health and well being of every single resident in our city. It's not enough for me to see homicide numbers go down. It's that I need to see life expectancy and life opportunity go up for every single young person, for every single resident, and for every single person who calls Philadelphia home or believes it's a place where opportunity can exist for them.
0: And 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 that is why uh, you were so impressive at Netroots because you were speaking not only a wish list but a how to fulfill this wish list. Now, uh, everybody talks about employment. Everybody talks about, well, X amount of folks of employment, of employment has gone down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But many people treat employees, hourly employees, as just cogs in a wheel, widgets that they can put here or there. Tell us a little bit about uh, the Fair Work Week, where you tackle that particular issue as well, showing the humanity in work.
1: Yes, absolutely, and now more than ever, it's so important. I mean, there's no surprise that Philadelphia, like most American cities, is built off of a lot of service work. And in Pennsylvania, we have the absolute lowest minimum wage of any surrounding state. We're at the bottom. We're at seven twenty-five an hour, two dollars and eighty-three, uh, two dollars and eighty-three cents an hour if you're a tipped worker. Welcome Those to Texas. Wages, yeah. Those wages are poverty wages, and we all know that. And, you know, you see a lot of companies cycle in and out. Um, You have high turnover in the retail, restaurant, hospitality industries, where many of these uh, service jobs are concentrated. They are hourly. They often do not ever make full-time work. Um, They don't often come with benefits. And the one thing that we noticed over and over and over again was that they had chaotic schedules. 70% 70% of people before our Fair work week law kicked in, almost 70% of hourly workers did not know what their day-to-day schedule was. It could change on any given moment, and it could even change hour to hour. Um, you could get called into work and then sent right back home with no compensation for the shifts that were promised to you. Um, you could see uh, you could see people being called in for overtime, um, for hours on end, even though they may have other commitments, including other jobs, um, care for an elderly or uh, a child, an elderly uh, individual or a child, um, whether they were juggling, you know, school or other types of obligations. When we see um, unstable schedules, what we were realizing were that employers were controlling people's time when they weren't at work, not when they were at work, but when they were not. And that we felt was something that as a municipality we could control. Now, To be clear, Elizabeth Warren has had a fair scheduling uh, plan in Congress year after year for many years, and we saw that, Um, and it simply was not moving through Congress. But in a in a city like ours, we have the power to enact a fair work week schedule at the local level. And so we led with the voices of workers. Initially people are like, this isn't, you know, the Chamber of Commerce. Others were saying, this is an HR issue. You should stay out of it. Nobody wants to get into people's schedules. But once we led with the voices of workers, once we proved that, you know, did a study that showed you know, that people, the vast majority of people did not even know what their work schedules were, everything changed. Everything changed when you had a college student saying I'm trying to work a job and pay to go to college but I can't make I can't meet both when my classes uh, or when my job, um, calls me in on hours when I'm supposed to be in class or when I get shifts canceled and I can't pay my college tuition bill. We heard from moms who said that their daycare schedules relied on jobs that were deeply unstable and where they couldn't even predict the hours that they worked. So our fair work week schedule was a huge win in 2018. Um, we pulled a lot of employers along with us. Um, we tried to say that this is normalized in other cities like Seattle and New York and um, and uh, and made sure that um, 130,000 plus hourly workers would have the promise at some of our nation's biggest retailers, Target, Walmart, McDonald's, elsewhere, would have a promise and a commitment that they would have uh, advanced notice, two weeks advance notice of their schedule, pay if shifts got canceled, a chance to earn additional hours. And, you know, slowly and surely what we are trying to do at the local level is prove that this poverty is not just about hourly wages, You know moving philadelphia from seven dollars and 25 cents an hour to eight dollars an hour which is going to be a big boon and will be important but it needs to be combined with many other things in order for it to be transformative poverty one of the things we learn about poverty is poverty is all about time people who live in poverty lose time more than anything else. And the fair work week schedule was a promise that time would be as valuable and seen as valuable as the amount of dollars that were being done. So we're going to fight on both fronts. Um, But I'm really proud that after we were able to move our fair work week, um, Chicago advanced, other cities advanced. And this is how we can see actually gains across the country. The biggest cities in the country should lead.
0: That is great. That is the difference between seeing society as society working for business as opposed to there being uh, business surrounded by what makes society better. It's so hard to get that across. So many politicians are there just to say, we'll arrange the cogs to serve business. There's another thing that you are uh, very involved with, and that is that ha- if you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. has to do with mental health. Many don't see that the crime rate... Problems at home, problems at school. Many of these things uh, all form one, one unit uh, th- that comes together to work against many. Now you've brought yourself into the mental health, not debate, but action. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's no question that um, the violence that is prevalent all across the country and deeply concentrated here in Philadelphia um, has had a massive impact. And there are individuals who want to roll the clock back on civil rights, bring us back to dark days of unconstitutional practices that have put cities like mine under Uh, you know, Department of Justice consent decrees or has contributed to mass incarceration and racial profiling that has harmed communities of color and especially in black and brown communities. Um, But, you know, in the in the conversation around how to tackle safety, what we hear over and over and over again from so many community members is the importance of mental health and outreach into communities. And that is a conversation that has traditionally not been had um, either within lots of communities or external to it. And so um, I have made it clear that I centered the mental health and well-being of everybody. And that includes from the earliest ages. Um, That's why I got nurses, counselors and social workers into the majority of our schools, that it had to be a priority. Um, But one of the bigger areas that we're we're zeroed in on is um, in 2021, we helped pilot uh, the in in concert with a host of advocates and mental health professionals, the first non-police mobile mental health crisis units. Um, this is meant to be a unit that would take away many of the 911 calls that often go into the police department. Um, they are self-identified as needing mental health responders. So it, the 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 purpose was to send out a trained mental health respondent plus an EMT out to a uh, home that specifically requested it. And what it meant was that, you know, I feel like when people call 911 for help, they should know that the right kind of help is on the way. And if they're identifying a psychotic episode, an addiction situation, or de-escalation situation, then they need that and not somebody who is untrained in this field coming in, you know, usually with a lot of you know, aggression because right. you've got a uniform, you've got a weapon, um, you're calm. You know, the, the point is for policing is to calm things down. But that often escalates a situation when you're dealing with mental health. Now, the difference here is, is that, um, you know, and, and we see it not only uh, in mental health experiences, but particularly around domestic violence. So domestic violence is another area where we've just seen escalating, escalating problems and very poor responses back from, you know, police officers and others, because this is, again, another area where we need to retrain people, respond to situations, domestic violence in the home overwhelmingly contributes to violence outside of the home as well. And so, you know, we want all eyes on on our mental health responders. But that being said, one of the problems that we're dealing with is that Philadelphia Um, unlike other cities, is constantly in a pilot mode. So we started in 2021 with just two units in a city of one and a half million people. Um, That's clearly inadequate. It's just clearly inadequate. And uh, Denver, for example, started at the exact same time. They now take thousands and thousands of calls through their mobile mental health crisis unit. Um, They are professionalizing and expanding, and we are still at a pilot phase. So my job as mayor is to invest in this area, to prove that um, investments on on not only training people to become better at the mental health work, not only will draw more people into this field, um, but it will actually help us respond better and allow police officers to actually respond to the 911 calls that demand their expertise, their training, and their presence.
0: You know, it it is amazing because in speaking to you today, I've heard you refer to other cities, other locales. That have, th- that done things that are successful and things that you could also bring to your, your, your community. And also the converse that your community has done this. Others in, in others can take Philadelphia's lead on this particular issue to do that. That's what it takes to be a good leader. In other words, you have to look at things that work, whether in your city or otherwise. And it's, that is excellent. The other thing that I, that I think people need to, to realize is, one of the things that you're that you bringing into schools is a lot of the times when you have a middle school or an elementary school or a high school, the first thing that goes are uh, goes things like the arts and, and music and other things that complement one's existence and makes one more, uh, you know, more stable. And, you know, to the guys who just count numbers, they just throw those things out the door and treat yeah,
1: not I don't even consider the arts to be um, complementary. I think they are essential to existence. I think that when you do, when you meet with a lot of young people, Um, especially in a city like Philadelphia. I think, you know, one of the things I talk about is that um, Philadelphia is a city that is often called the poorest large city in America because almost one out of four residents lives in poverty. But the more staggering figure is that 37% of our children are actually born into it. And if there is one thing that we know about poverty, it is fundamentally dehumanizing Mm. from the moment of existence. It strips everything away from you as humanity. And oftentimes what I see is that schools replicate that type of inhumanity. It takes sort of the thing that has been denied to communities um, all across the city, um, not who are poor, but who have been impoverished. I'm very purposeful that poverty on this scale is not by accident. You cannot accidentally allow 37% of your kids. To be born into poverty. That is no accident, whether intentional or not. It is manufactured. It is it is by design. And thus, everything that we do should be designed to reverse all of that. Um, And that that is a kind of of. Purposefulness, relentlessness and um, determination that needs to go in to actually turn things around. But when I walk into a lot of schools um, and talk to young people, especially those who are in our, who end up in our juvenile justice or child welfare system, many of them are, are, you know, have felt rejected by a school system that just remediated them, just tried to make them fit into standardized boxes and never allowed them to become their fullest, person. And so their interests right now, the things that make them excited are are about a a reaffirmation of their own humanity. And that starts with arts. They are into graphic design. They are into fashion. They are into music. They are into writing and storytelling. They're into narratives however they may be exercised across, you know, multiple different um, you know, art forms. And um, I think that this is something that is extremely powerful, that it is hopeful and that excites the imagination and could revitalize the ways in which we both reach people, but have people engage with us. I've often talked a lot about how I would, how I would like to see working artists embedded in a lot of our institutions, particularly in behavioral health. Um, particularly around uh, making sure that, you know, parks and rec centers always have art programs that are associated with them. It's not just about sports and other kind of competitive right. work it is actually about restoring people to people. A reminder that our humanity starts with our identification as humans, our expression as humanity, um, and that there are real economic benefits, there are academic benefits, and other types of things um, that happen when we we really actually invest in it. And, you know, just secondarily, like, Philadelphia is a historic city. We're the sounds of Philadelphia. We're the home of, of American Bandstand to the Roots. And, you know, like, we are very clear that um, that this kind of joy that emanates out from um, from communities all across Philadelphia that have defined the sounds of America um, can be, need to be revitalized again and that this isn't just you know kind of a, a pipe dream but it's actually work you know it's economic work it's investments in communities uh, but I think it gives back uh, you know a hundredfold, um, if not more
0: it is important how you made that. You you, you made that uh, transition. It, how can you see the value of sports and not see the value of arts? It, it is uh, it, 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 the congruence is so amazing that you wonder how people just cannot see that. Um, good that that Philadelphia is going to have a mayor who thinks like that uh, <laughs> going going forward. Now um, I always have a last question, and you know what that last question is, and that is. What would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? What would you like to tell the audience that they need to hear?
1: Well, you know, many people are going to watch and say, why should I care about Philadelphia? You know, like I don't live there. We don't see, you know, it's not going to touch me. Um, I'm worried about this and that. But one of the things that I try to tell a lot of people is that we have for too long focused a lot of our attention on um, on places that have that are, you know, they can always evolve, but it takes time. You know, Congress right now, um, many people probably donated countless dollars and more importantly, like countless hours fretting about obscure places.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
1: in Wisconsin, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida hoping to influence a Congress that is largely controlled by money um, that has really become rigidified, Um, it doesn't mean that we don't continue to do that. But I want people to not, and and those things are absolutely necessary, but I, I want people to see hope. In local movements, you know, you talked a little earlier about what I see um, building from the ground up, and what I see is that people who are deeply close to movements are actually deeply tied to local politics. But as you noted. My local politics isn't just about Philadelphia's for Philadelphians only. My local politics is how we spread the good word um, out to lots of different communities that have the power to make change. And that, you know, if you're worried about the education um, that's happening in our country right now, um, it does, you know, it is as important to elect your school board as it is who is the U.S. Secretary of Education. Yes, it is as important to have um, justice be defined by your district attorney and not whoever is the U.S. Attorney General in the moment. And in our nation's largest cities, you are seeing the rise of a vibrant um you know, highly mobilized, organized community of people um, who have been advocating and exhorting for change, for a roof to keep over our heads um, under rising, you know, rising costs um, for people who have fought for decent schools in a stratifying uh, economy and world. You know, we are fighting to make sure that jobs are and people within those jobs are as valued as the corporate entities and the Wall Street, you know, executives making decisions about people's lives, we are proving in fact that there is nothing about us without us. And I think that this movement is transforming economies, but they're doing it at the ground level. So why should anyone watching your show care about what's happening in Philadelphia? It's because I hope over the next 81 days, you will see a real people's movement striving um, to take the helm of one of America's largest cities and prove that these cities, these original cities, you know, I often say Philadelphia is the original city of rebels and revolutionaries, (laughs) that this city can write a new blueprint. Um, for an America that has been too far left behind. And that hope is as much local and in our municipalities, in the work that we do at the local level as it is anywhere in Congress. This isn't a hierarchy about politics and power. It is about our ability to mobilize change anywhere, everywhere um, that we can see it. And um, that's what we're doing in Philadelphia. I hope folks um, who are excited can go to our website, um, www.helengim.com. Um, and just be invested in this campaign. Um, support uh, what's happening in Chicago. Philly, Philly's up next, and um, and we're here to transform this country as much as we are to transform our city.
0: Helen Gim, mayoral candidate for Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a hell of a community organizer, a former teacher, councilwoman in Philadelphia, and much more. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right Philadelphia could do absolutely no better. Thank you so kindly.
1: Thank you,
0: We All right, folks, I love that woman, Helen Gim. She is a powerhouse. Let me tell you that when she gets in front of a crowd, uh, she knows the material left and right. She knows what she's talking about. And the most important thing, you guys who listen to this show a lot, Know what I've always said, the most important profession bar none are teachers. Teachers are the most important profession. the least important profession out there, stock brokering and that sort of money managers, all that kind of stuff, people that move away, move around money that, that actually produce nothing for society. the absolutely horrendous uh, portion about it, right? But anyhow, um, let's get busy. Um, uh i saw a thing that touched me but i can't remember so what i'm going to do is i'm going to go up there what time is it i have some yeah i got some time let me go up close to the top and start answering questions or or start looking to see what you guys were talking about uh i hope your guest address is happening in philly uh actually she uh, gave a great speech in Philly. I don't know what what the video is that you just showed there. Fast from bitterness, fast uh, feast on forgiveness. Fast from self concern, feast on compassion. Fast from suspicion, feast on truth. Fast from gossips, feast on purposeful silence. E two two four seven always has good words. I love those words, and it's evidently British MCP loves it too. Michael Rodnan says. Oh ho! Expect that name to be intentionally mispronounced repeatedly. Her name is Gim, not Jim. It is Helen Gim. Again, whoever owns their name owns how they want their name to be said, and in uh, her uh, in her parlance, it is Helen Gim. All right. Egberto pronounce it Jim. nope, 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 it's Gim, not Jim. It's Gim. We verified before we got anything started. uh let's see what else we got. It's both very low, okay that you you heard some talking. Actually, believe it or not, this stuff has a this mic here has an issue, even when we're out of scope that it shouldn't have because what happened is as, as I was playing this, I got a call from uh, the congressman in uh, the congressman in Tennessee who uh for Black History Month or something like that got sworn in in a Dashiki and an afro. He just got elected a senator I think, a state senator in in um in Tennessee. Raise a big stink. All oh, these guys he, he wasn't dressed appropriately. Well, who decides who's dressed appropriately? And a Republican Congress uh went in a fitsy. So I called him up and I said, hey, man, we need to talk because it seems to me like you're creating havoc out there in the state of Tennessee, in the legislature in Tennessee. Let's talk about why it was so offensive to some of these for you to have on a dress dashiki, not a dashiki for going camping, but a dressed dashiki. And to those guys, it created a problem. Wow. Oh my God, it's going to be a fun interview. So his, uh, his staff is working with me to set up an p- appropriate date for that interview. So that's, I think that may be some of what you heard talking in the background. All right, uh, let's see what else we got. Michael Rodnick says, infrastructure, investment and benefits for the people. That is what you get when you elect majority of progressives into power. And she is a real progressive who means business. And it looks like she may get elected as the next mayor of Philadelphia. It's a good chance that she will be be elected. Uh, Daniel Lado says, rolling off my, you know what, you know, Daniel. He says children are dying without school nurses. Yes, they are. And I think uh, Brother Wood made a good case for it for you. So read what Brother Wood has to say to you. Uh, let's see what else we got here. That's a uh, Lee Grant. Let me just tell you, okay, uh, our public school system, because of funding, because of what many times those on the rights are doing to the educational system is screwing it. Because of some of these things like charter schools, are, which are nowhere close to being as good as public schools in the aggregate. That's why we have problems. If we really want solutions, we invest in teachers. We invest in good schools. We invest in not only education at school, but we invest in building up society. But we don't do that. You see, we are... We need to have poverty, as 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 uh, Helen Gim said. Poverty is no accident. She's absolutely right about it. Poverty is no accident. All right, let's continue reading. And if I miss your stuff, forgive me. Daniel Ledeau, you're thinking of Fox Republicans as the propaganda machine. Very true. MSDNC isn't leftist. They are liberal cheerleaders for the Democratic Party, All you got is intentionally misunderstanding your position, a position over again. That's what they do. Rudnan, that's what they do. What can I say? Okay, from Michael Rudnan, Fortune, overemployment is here. Nearly half of workers have more than one full-time job. The poor are losing their time, all right, and this needs to be addressed. That's what she's talking
1: about. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
0: And, you know, I can tie that into Eric Hayes complaining about the border. If we were smart... We need a lot more people coming into the fold, paying them more so that more Americans can have, they don't, they don't get minimum wage, but a lot more so they can be home more with their families. And you would think the party that claims itself to be a family values party would see it, but they don't. You know why? They're not a family values party. They're a corporate driven party masquerading as a pro-life, pro-family party. But all the policies that they've passed, either kills, harms, or maim. You want to hear the killings? Look at our healthcare system. You want to hear the maimings? Look at uh, Palestine, Ohio. You want to hear about the destroying of the social fabric? Look at Appalachia. That's all we got to do. The examples are all there for all to see. All right, continuing, continuing, continuing. Uh, let's see. Lee Grant says you should expand on that. Do you think certain minorities are more violent than white children? No. A violence many times have to do with environment. So no. Leftists would say to look at the economic scale to see if there's a poverty connection to petty crimes. Uh, wait a minute. Oh yes. Let me give you a joke. Here in Kingwood, right? And this was a a big article in the Houston press about a decade ago or so. Uh, The guy who sells dope, I'm talking about kilos of cocaine, you know, he comes in and he says, oh, he does better selling these drugs in Kingwood. Why? You have a steady, steady supply of customers and the same repeat customers. Why? You know, in the hood, first of all, the people don't have a lot of money to afford this cocaine so addicts many times commit crimes to get their cocaine and also a lot of these people are not regulars because eventually they get arrested they don't get second chances etc but he loves kingwood because kingwood is a better place where you know the housewives and the parents. he said i sell two kilos of cocaine there a week or something like that he said then he said and you know only half of it goes to the kids you know where the other half goes to the parents, and they have a steady flow of income. So they don't have to worry about going to jail either. Like I've given you guys a story about here, you get a DWI in South Park, Texas, you go to jail. In Kingwood, they take you home. That's what happens. And I, it, it's not, it, you know, I I know so many people that that is their reality. So when you guys talk to me about many of these issues, it just rolls off because you really I feel that you don't have the right. I, I I am sorry that you continue to remain ignorant to the truth, because those who inform you, meaning the media that you that you have an affinity for, don't inform you. Lucky you're here at Kingwood. uh, You're here at Politics Done Right. So I hope that even as you push back on me constantly, that you will at least get some modicum of information. Um, by the way, Bridge, you were talking earlier about uh, the Second Bill of Rights. Uh, here is your Second Bill of Rights, my friend, and it's—I put the link in the in the chat where you can actually listen, read what I wrote about it years ago, and also hear it from the man himself, uh, FDR, uh, Frederick. Uh, uh, what? Well, huh. Can you believe I forgot his first name? But anyway, we're talking about Roosevelt, right? We're talking about Roosevelt, FDR. Franklin D. Roosevelt all right continuing from my great listeners, Julie Henderson says poverty is not by accident, as I said before. it is a legal way of restricting constitutional rights and not able to fight their rights, lack of money, etc exactly. Uh, exactly 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 uh, she's really great. Thank you, Bridge MCP. yeah, I, I love her she is she is your activist activist okay i really like the way she comes across because she knows the most important thing is that she knows the material not only because of what she reads she knows the material because she lived among the people she taught the people she did all of that so it's not for her none of this is conjecture all right uh mike sisek of course has a nonsensical statement democrat control school spent a huge amount of no Schools spend a huge percentage of money, and in difficult schools, it's more difficult. And you go to rural areas, that's a completely different story, right? All right. Uh, Let's see what else we got here. Let's see what else we got here. Daniel Liddell says, she is really good at that particular leftist tactic of using political and ideological psychobabble. No, she actually tells the truth, that you choose not to understand it. That's your desire to remain ignorant, but I can't help that, my dear brother. But, you know, ignorant can be overcome simply by reading and listening. That's all. Eric says, "Giberto, the money manager can contribute money to the poor. The money manager, oh, you mean he can redistribute the money he's stolen back to the people he stole it from. I love the way you think, Eric. Again, still slave mentality, but I I get it. I get it. I get it. All right. Let's see what else we got here. My name is Bridge, but call me Queen, L-O-L. You are our queen, Bridge. You remain our queen. All right, Eric says, Egberto, blasphemous Mallorca. He's not blasphemous. You guys, I mean, you you know, it, it's funny. I, I tell you what. Let me see what time. I better play the second. Oh, you know what? It doesn't look like I have time to play the second tape because I think it's over 10 minutes and all we got is 10 minutes. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to play that tomorrow, but I'm going to read the blog, uh, that, that blog piece that I gave about it. Okay, because there's something... Well, no, actually today was supposed to be Carter. Tomorrow I do the Palestine. I'm not going to do the Palestine now. I'm going to do the Carter tomorrow. Let's let's go ahead and do the Carter now. Let's see if I have enough time. Probably barely enough time. But I think I can squeeze Carter in there if I go over by just a tad bit. But let's get Carter in there because I have some other things that I wanted to say about Carter. So let me get to Carter and put brother Carter in there. You know, I love that guy. Let's talk Carter. Let's do it. President Carter was always my hero. Always. I was always a science nerd growing up in Panama. Contrary to popular belief, most people around the world have a lot of good feelings towards Americans. The American government, different thing. The American corporation, a different thing. But, People look up to America as being that center where things happen, you know? That's where the la moda comes. That is where a whole lot of, you know, you can you can be what you want to be, etc. So a lot the goal of a lot of folks who aren't necessarily uh who think they have this new thing they wanna do or they wanna to go to a good university, etc. good engineering school or whatever they look up to America, you know? A lot of the right would want you to sit back there and believe like they hate Americans, they hate us for freedom. No, that's not true, you know? And those of us that come over here and we choose to live over here, we also want this country that we learned about back where, wherever we are, whether it's Pakistan, Panama, Costa Rica, wherever it is, we say, you know, we, we came to the States and we're gonna make sure all, all of us live up to our ideals, right? So that's the reality. So, you know, we followed Carter back there in Panama. I read a lot about President Carter as a young man, actually as a teenager. I found out he was a nuclear physicist and worked on nuclear reactors. In my mind, that was the coolest thing ever. A president that was a nuclear engineer. I had already made up my mind to be an engineer. And guess what? The President of the United States was an engineer, a man of science. You know? Usually you see all these charlatanes as you know you, you know, charlatanes, you had the, the, the Reagan and all these guys who kind of play the part, but really, you can, you can push them anywhere because, you know what? They don't know, right? So you can have them do whatever. and they do it like puppets. Reagan was a puppet. You know. Anyhow, I was impressed with Carter's promoting the development of synthetic fuels and placing solar cells in the White House. I mean, think about it. This was back in 1978, 1976, between 76 and 79. And Carter, I mean, between 70, it was actually between, he served between 77 and 80. And Carter had the wherewithal to throw solar panels. And you know, they weren't as good as they were now on the white house why he wanted to lead by example he wanted us to get off of all these carbonated synth- uh, these carbonated type fuels that are not regenerative etc etc right so he his plan was to use the abundance of what we had in the united states then carbon turn it into turn it into, you know, gasoline, diesel, or whatever, but also noting that there would be improvements that we could make even these fuels relatively green. This was back in 1970-something, folks. Then, of course, he had the solar panels on the top of the roof on, in, in the White House. Unfortunately, President Carter lost the election of 19, I think it was 1979 or 1980. I I think it was 1980 was the election. All right, he lost the election, 1980. And Reagan comes into office and the first thing Reagan does, a cowboy Reagan, the guy who hated Medicare. And by the way, for all of those that are listening to me, the hate of Medicare by the right didn't start recently. Reagan made a record. That's how they used, you know, we had cassettes and all of that. But in Reagan's time, it was a long play record. Talking about Medicare will take your freedom away. Of course, Medicare really gives you your freedom. But he was like, Medicaid will take your freedom. Medicare will take your freedom away. But anyhow, let's digress back to the subject at hand, Carter. So Carter, you know, with Sinfuels uh, and all these other things... This was a forward-looking president. This was a president that, absent somebody like Reagan being in the White House, our entire energy picture would be different. And if you want an example, we don't have to leave this hemisphere. We can go to a place like Brazil. In Brazil, they took sin fuels. I call it sin fuels, even though it's, you know, It's ethanol. With their cane sugar abundance and made themselves independent energy independent why because they had forethought and they didn't have folks that were lying to them about taking away your freedom trying to give you freedom now is taking away your freedom anyhow Seven, go ahead um go ahead uh, sorry I think some of what Carter was doing was economic nationalism because OPEC was uh, kicking in about then if I remember yes. uh doing an embargo, the embargo. Cutting off the fuel mm-hmm. you know long lines at the gas stations and uh, so it was some environmentalism for sure he was wearing his sweater and the uh, photo op in the White House and telling everybody to turn their thermostats down and putting on the solar panels but I think some of that was economic nationalism as well I don't I will not at all dispute that with you Tori but you know what uh, sometimes a cat can be skinned to, in the you know different ways and the thing about it is also the fact about using less energy yes it was about nationalism it was about it was about we have to be able to you know we don't we need to re- remove our dependency from foreign sources controlling our energy picture and i agree with that but also solar panels is inherently a green technology and if i don't care by what means it comes we got it but i was most impressed with his life after the presidency So yes, Carter did a lot, a lot of stuff that folks don't know about. Not the EPA, but FEMA was Carter. You know, there's a lot that this guy did in four years that was humane. But again, what impressed me most with Carter, what impressed me most was his life after the president. Of all the presidents living or dead, and that includes Bush 1, Bush 2, Obama, Reagan, those are the presidents that's lived through my lifetime. Well, Kennedy didn't have a post-presidency. Johnson did. Uh, of all these presidents, I have yet to find one who used his title as former United States president to do such good. I do not think there is one more impactful in what he does for humanity. Whenever people had elections in difficult places, they searched for Carter. Whenever people had problems with gorillas or whatever, they searched for Carter. Carter could speak to the the folks that we refer to as gorillas or he would speak to the folks referred to as Democrats. He could speak to everybody because he had inherent to his soul, that person, that good person, that good person. I became a supporter of Habitat for Humanity because I saw President Carter building houses. An ex-president was hanging with the commoners, building homes with his bare hands and a hammer. As I learned more about this man, a selfless soul who did not forget where he came from as he helped millions, I wanted to follow in that path. We should all want to follow in that path. You know, if you take a look at, if you go to Fox News, they make a caricature out of, uh, out of President Carter. And he never answers. He just goes out there and do good and do good and do good. It shows you, you don't have to join. You don't have to join the, the, the noise about you. You just go out there and you do good and you do good. President Carter. President Carter. President Jimmy Carter is in hospice at his home right now. The man who seemed indestructible from illness may be on his last leg, but at 98, a servant to society, all I can say is misión cumplida, mission accomplished. Doesn't matter if you go today, tomorrow, or a year, or when, President Carter, you have one hell of a fan in Egberto Willis, brother. And like I said, uh, you, you, you look at other people and what other people do, right we are we all to some extent mimic what others do and it is an honor to attempt to come to, to do some of what you've done when we think of our fellow man when we think of others we absolutely so folks absolutely so president carter a good person a good soul a good man And for all those who caricature him, remember what they're caricaturing is that which they likely will never be. Uh, Folks, I gotta get out of here. It's way past my time. Uh, Let me just put things on the screen real quickly for what folks have asked for about the educational system. Uh, That is how much is spent per from Bridge MCP. That is how much is spent per pupil. Check it out. Uh, so you can see what people, which states think a little bit about their kids, don't care too much about their kids. And of course, Radnan put, Rudnan went out there and discovered and found the guy that I'm going to be interviewing, as you can see him on the screen right now, who wore that dress dashiki to actually sworn in. It's a dress dashiki, his culture. But it's a problem. Oh, it's a problem. But anyhow, folks, I ask you so kindly to support the show. I only have time to put one on the screen. So please go ahead and support us at politicsdoneright.com support. Politicsdoneright.com support. All the links for the different forms of supporting us can be found there. We cannot do this without you. We cannot give you all this real information we cannot do the enlightening to cover up all the lies that you hear on the right and all the squibbly information you hear elsewhere. I thank you so kindly for uh, continuing to watch. Please remember to continue to share. I couldn't do it without you. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right, and you guys know how I end this baby. I am what? i oh.